Friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we're going to continue our series through the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, tracing his uh, journeys and travels through the book of Acts. Um, as you know, for the past couple weeks, we've kind of been situated and fixed um, somewhere between Acts 19 and 20 when Paul writes to the church at Corinth. And this morning we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Paul writes, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, if it came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away, but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Indeed, the grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, the other day, I actually saw a video, a very interesting video, of some guys playtesting some old-school tennis rackets, okay? Rackets that the pros played with back in the 70s and early 80s. It was really funny and interesting to watch. And it reminded me of the very first tennis racket I ever received back in the summer of 1981. Shortly after showing a strong interest in the game, I asked my mother 
if she would consider buying for me a tennis racket. I was 10 years old. I can still vividly remember, like it was yesterday, getting home after a summer trip to the lake with Bobby Workman and his family, bounding up the black metal stairs to our garage. I can still hear the sound. Bounding up the black metal stairs, opening the door, and seeing it for the first time. Seeing it, taking it in my hands, examining every single facet of it. I resonate with the experience of Harry Potter when he received his wand. It's written that it was an unusual combination, his wand, holly feather, holly and phoenix feather, 11 inches, nice and very supple. Harry took the wand. He felt a sudden warmth in his fingers. He raised the wand high above his head, brought it swishing down through the dusty air, and a stream of red and gold sparks shot from the end like a firework throwing dancing spots of light onto the walls. Friends, that's exactly what happened when I picked up <laughs> my brand new Jack Kramer Jr. Made of all wood, mostly ash and beech, 25 inches long, nice and very supple. It was a weapon in my hands and I used it to hit my sister on a regular basis. It was glorious. I felt like Arthur when he pulled out Excalibur from the stone. But technology back in the day, as like today, was advancing rapidly. And within just a few years of that racket being purchased, within just a few years, wooden rackets would be a thing of the past. And oh man, should you see the rackets we have today. It's incredible. Rackets made of graphite, boron, and even Kevlar. Not sure what Kevlar does, but it sounds good, and I want some of that in my racket. These are not your grandmother's rackets. Sadly, as glorious as that Jack Kramer Jr. was in my hands, it cannot begin to compare with what we have today. And no one in their right mind would ever play with a wooden racket while they can pick up a Wilson Blade 98 or a Technofiber T305 like I have. No one would ever go back to those wooden frames. Inconceivable. And for the Apostle Paul, it was equally inconceivable that anyone would go back to living under the legalism of the Old Covenant when the free grace of God and Christ Jesus was available for all. I mean, why in the world would any believer in the church at Corinth want to go back to Old Covenant legalism, back to the day when they thought obedience to the law gave them life? Why would they want to go back to that? What's going on? Well, you see, that's exactly where the Corinthians were heading if they listened to Paul's adversaries. And I think we're quite familiar with Paul's adversaries. Men like the Judaizers of Galatia had not stayed in the north. Okay, they had drifted down to the south or come over to the west, if you will. And they advertised themselves as apostles, these Judaizers. Paul sarcastically referred to them as super apostles, although there was nothing super about them. 
these so-called super apostles even had letters of recommendation to commend them to the Corinthian church, meaning they had actual letters, physical letters back from so-called leaders in the church in Jerusalem to establish their bona fides, to establish their credibility, their legitimacy, to teach and pastor the flock in Corinth. But they weren't apostles, not really. Their goal was simple, to undermine Paul and his gospel by attacking his credibility. Okay, and they attacked his credibility in a number of ways. Okay, they tried to undermine the people's confidence in Paul as their father in the faith. Among other things, they said that Paul wasn't a man of his word. They accused him of being fickle and inconsistent because Paul at one time had said he was going to come visit him, and then in God's providence, he changed his mind and didn't come. He didn't think it would be appropriate, given his state, to go visit them at that time. So he didn't. So they accused him of being fickle and inconsistent. They said his in-person presence was weak and lacking in charisma. Like they accused him of being a big talker while he was away and being weak when he was there. They said he was too harsh and terrifying in his letters, too direct and, and overwhelming to them. And last but not least, they questioned, questioned his qualifications as an apostle, said, whereas they had letters of recommendation, physical letters commending them to the church, Paul didn't have any, and therefore he wasn't fit to be an apostle. The gospel they were preaching was that salvation comes from the work of Jesus and obedience to certain things of the law of Moses. They taught that, yes, you needed to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also had to obey certain parts of Old Testament law to be saved, okay? It would be like saying today, you have to believe in Jesus and also be baptized to be saved. Jesus plus baptism saves you. It would be like today saying you have to believe in Jesus and do five quiet times a week in order to be saved. It's like today saying you have to believe in Jesus but, leave 20, but lead 25 people to the Lord in order to to be saved. And so Paul wasn't having it. Not for a minute. Paul says, we are not going back to that. The law was never able to bring life. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ by his spirit can bring life to his people. Okay, so we're going to look at the text. We're going to work our way through the text. The way in which Paul refutes them is fascinating and it's masterful, really. Okay, let's look at verses 1 through 3 printed in your bulletin, where Paul clarifies that he's not praising himself, okay? He feels the need to qualify what he's about to say. He's not bragging. He's not commending himself. You see, they had made lots of accusations against Paul, and Paul was in the position of having to defend himself, but he's clarifying, I'm not bragging. I'm not commending myself. I'm just trying to respond to what you're saying and establish the validity of my ministry. Look at verse 1. He asks, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, am I bragging again? No, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just defending the legitimacy of my apostleship. Verse 1, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? If you read the book of Acts, it's not uncommon 
for Paul to give people, Timothy or Titus, like a letter of recommendation. That wasn't uncommon in the ancient Near East and certainly in these missionary journeys to give someone a letter of recommendation. That in itself was not a problem, okay? Not a problem, but the people were claiming they had them and that Paul didn't. Paul's like, you're right, I don't. I don't have letters of recommendation. But masterfully, he says, I've got something much better than that. Look at verse 2. You, yourselves, are our letter. In other words, I don't have a physical letter, but I've got you. Your existence as a church, the work of God in Christ Jesus by His Spirit in this crazy community Corinth is evidence of the fact that my ministry is legitimate. Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter. Your existence, your growth in the Lord, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. In other words, you know, all over Macedonia and Greece, people knew about the church in Corinth. Its reputation spread far and wide, okay? Everyone knows about what the Lord is doing in you and through you. Verse 3, Paul's making his point clear. You show that you are our letter from Christ. In other words, I don't have a physical letter from Jerusalem to commend myself. I've got you. You are our letter. And the letter isn't from people back in Jerusalem. It's from Jesus Christ himself. You show that you are our letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. You are what validates us in my ministry, written not with ink. Okay, he's not talking about a physical letter, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You are our letter, written by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, it was the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and the lives of these people that validated and authenticated Paul's ministry. The church at Corinth, or really, I'm sorry, the city of Corinth was known as an incredibly licentious place, a very sexually depraved place. Like, like sexual immorality was, you know, um, people would say to Corinthianize. That was like a synonym for sexual immorality. And yet these people's lives had been changed. And they were seeking to grow in the Lord and know Jesus more. It was miraculous. His point's going to be what the Ten Commandments were powerless to do. See, the Judaizers were focusing on the Ten Commandments and things like circumcision, believing in Jesus, and then doing certain things to be accepted by God. Paul's point is the Ten Commandments were powerless to give you life. Moses was powerless to give you life. The life you now have comes from Jesus Christ by His Spirit. Why in the world would you be tempted to listen to these Judaizers? Look at verses 4 through 6. Paul clarifies that he's not taking credit for what's obviously happening in Corinth, the wonderful things that the Lord is doing in this church. He's not taking credit for it. All credit goes to Christ. Verse 4. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, 
but our competence comes from God. In other words, it's, it's His work. It's not ours. It's His ministry that He's given to us. All praise goes to Him. Verse 6. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. That's key. See, the Judaizers, in a sense, were ministers of this hybrid thing. They were ministers, in a sense, of the old covenant. Paul says, that's not where my competence or credibility comes from. God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Then he clarifies, not of the letter. Okay, he's using that, that term letter. They're, Greek, they're different Greek words. In the beginning, when he talked about a letter of recommendation, that's a different Greek word than the word he's using here now for letter. Okay? But he's kind of playing off that word letter here. He says, um, verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter. Now he's talking about not a letter back from Jerusalem, but a, the letter of the law. Think Ten Commandments. Verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, not of Ten Commandments type Christianity, but of the Spirit. For the letter, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, they kill but the Spirit gives life. Okay? According to Paul. See, the Ten Commandments in them are wonderful in and of themselves. They were glorious. They had a certain amount of glory. But the Israelites, like us today, related to the law of God in improper ways. Okay? The Israelites of old related to the Ten Commandments, obeyed the Ten Commandments to establish their own righteousness before God. Okay, that's where the Pharisees came from and the degree to which they saw themselves being successful in obeying the law of, law of God, the more self-righteous and self-possessed they became. But ultimately we know that no one can perfectly Obey the Ten Commandments. In other words, the Ten Commandments, one of the reasons the Ten Commandments were given was to show the people of God that righteousness could not be found in the attempt to obey them perfectly because no one can. God says, be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. Who here can be perfect? No one can be perfect. Who here can be perfectly holy? No one can be perfectly holy from trying to keep the law. And so that is a dead-end road, according to Paul. He's going to draw out a comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, verses 7 through 11. Now, if the ministry that brought death... Okay, that's what he's calling the Old Covenant. That's what he's calling the giving of the law. That's what he's calling the Ten Commandments. Notice what he calls it here. The ministry that brought death death, which was engraved in letters on stone. That's the Ten Commandments. He's saying, if that came with glory, and it did, there was a certain amount of glory that came with the giving of the law. If that came with glory, if the Ten Commandments that brought death were glorious, okay, if that came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, he clarifies, fading though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? 
So this is interesting. Back in Exodus 34, so when Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, his face was radiating with the glory of God. And after communicating the law, when he began to teach the people, Moses would have to put a veil over his face, like a, some kind of face covering. Because the people were frightened. They were overwhelmed with the glory of God. It was too majestic. They, they couldn't take it. And so Moses had to put on a veil. And that veil, in a sense, separated them from the glory of God. What was the purpose of the veil in the temple? The veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. It separated people from the glory and the holiness of God. It was a wall of separation. And that's one role that this veil played when Moses put it over his face. It was to, it was to shield the people from the glory of God. It was, it was overwhelming to, the, to them. But here's his point. He's making a comparison from a lesser to a greater. He's saying if the Ten Commandments, which killed you, if that had glory, buddy, you better believe that the new covenant in Jesus Christ has an immeasurably greater glory. Why in the world would you go back to that? Why would you go back to playing with the Jack Kramer Jr. when you can play with the Wilson Blade 98? Like, no one would do that. It's inconceivable. Look at verse 9. He's just making the same point over and over again in subtly different ways. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, again, if the giving of the law was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Why would you go back to something that killed you? When you can look to something in the new covenant that gives righteousness in life, verse 10, for what was glorious, the old covenant, the Ten Commandments, it has no, it has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Okay, what's the essence of the surpassing glory? The person and work, the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, and if what was fading away came with glory. How much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. So there was like a secondary reason that Moses put a veil over his face to shield the people from the glory of God and also to shield them from the fact that the glory was fading. The purpose of the Old Covenant was temporary. It was pedagogical, okay? It was to help the people understand that life can't be found in our performance. That's not where life is found. Life is found in the Lord Jesus. You know, oftentimes we relate to God initially at the beginning by trusting in the Lord Jesus, but over time, suddenly, we fall into kind of a performance mentality. We judge those around us. We don't think, you know, are as obedient as we are, who maybe don't witness like we do, who maybe don't seem as spiritual as we do. We, we over time, kind of live like God loves us because of our performance, because of our obedience. We swell up with pride, like the Pharisees. That is so offensive. 
to the Lord our God. Our righteousness is entirely, entirely alien to, to us. The only reason that God accepts us is because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that was revealed in the glory of the new covenant. Sadly, according to Paul, in verses 14 and 15, sadly, that veil is still there for many who think that they can be made acceptable to God through their performance, by what they do. So sad. Verse 14, but their minds were made dull. For to this day, he's now using the veil metaphorically. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. In other words, there's a veil over their hearts when they hear Moses read because they don't see their need for Jesus Christ. They don't see Christ in the Old Testament. You know, they relate to the law as a way to be accepted by God. And in that sense, there's this separation. There's this veil over their hearts. Paul points out, it has not been removed. Here's the key. Here's what he's trying to say to these Judaizers. It has not been removed. Here's the key. Because only in Christ is the veil taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. They failed to see. Moses couldn't give them life. The Old Covenant can only be understood and read and related to properly by reading it and understanding it through Jesus. Then we understand how we relate to the law of God. The law of God's important. Why are we to obey? Not to earn God's favor, but because we have His favor. Out of gratitude for the glory that we have in the new covenant. But if you're like me, it's all too easy to fall back into performance Christianity as if the law gives us some kind of righteousness. In verses 17 and 18, Paul describes the unveiled covenant. The glory, the beauty of the unveiled covenant. When that partition, that barrier is taken away as we understand it through Christ. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus, the veil, it's taken away. You know, this is kind of another way of talking about the road to Emmaus, seeing Christ in the Old Testament. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, that, that veil, that separation is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from law-keeping as the way to heaven. Verse 18. This is so beautiful. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. He's saying, here's the proof. We're being transformed into his likeness. That's something that the Old Testament law was never able to do. In other words, we are experiencing sanctification. The Holy Spirit is changing us and growing us and transforming us. He says, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord... Who is the Spirit? You Corinthians, the fact that you're being changed from the inside out because of your love for Jesus, in that sense, you're our letter of recommendation. And in that sense, we are Christ's letter of recommendation, or we're a letter written by Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit as He grows us and changes us. I mean, like, growth in the Lord is a miraculous thing. When people trust in Jesus, 
and their lives are changed. That is a miraculous thing. If that's happening in your life, you are a walking miracle. All glory goes to the Lord Jesus. Sorry, this is falling off. I'm not sure why. Okay, so when describing his adolescent years, I'm going to end with this. Spurgeon said, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean in my own feeling. I was unhappy, I was desponding, I was despairing, I dreamed of hell, Spurgeon writes. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. Well, Spurgeon woke up one January Sunday in 1850 with a deep sense of his need for deliverance. He left for church, but the snowstorm hit. He writes, because of the snowstorm, or it's written because of the snowstorm, the 15-year-old's path to church, so he's 15 when this happened, was diverted down a side street. For shelter, he ducked into a small Methodist chapel where a substitute lay preacher stepped into the pulpit and read his text. Now, this gives me hope as a preacher, honestly. So he leaves his house, despondent, knowing he was headed straight to hell, overwhelmed. In the middle of a snowstorm, providence of God, he seeks shelter in what was a Methodist chapel. Okay, the normal preacher wasn't there. A lay preacher, a lay elder was there, and he read his text, Isaiah 45, 22, which reads, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Spurgeon records his reaction, quote, The lay preacher had not much else to say, thank God, which compelled him to keep on repeating his text. In other words, he wasn't schooled, he didn't know what else to say, I feel like that a whole lot, okay? And so he kept on just repeating the text. Spurgeon writes is, and there was nothing else needed by me at any rate except for him to read the text. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery. And he said, that young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, as I think only a Methodist can, look! Look, young man, look now, meaning stop looking at yourself. Look to Jesus Christ for salvation and mercy. Then I saw what a Savior Christ was. Beloved, that's the only place we should be looking. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you for your graciousness and loving kindness, Father. It is all too easy for us to, functionally speaking, uh, transition into a Judaizing way of living, um, living as if um, your love for us was based on our performance, on our ability to keep your law. Nothing could be further from the truth. Father, we know that you love us, not because of our good deeds, but in spite of our good deeds. You love us and accept us, not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ, his person and work, his life and death. Father in help, Father in heaven, help us not to look to ourselves. Help us to look to your provision for us in the Lord Jesus. We pray in his matchless name. Amen and amen.